0: We'll take your copy of God's Word and turn with me this morning to the Gospel of John. To the Gospel of John. As I noted last week, we are going to take a break from our exposition of Luke's Gospel. And we are going to have some sermons here over the next few weeks from the first chapter of the Gospel of John. And you'll notice in your bulletins that I've entitled this uh, Christmas series, Christmas from the Perspective of Eternity. So this morning we will be looking at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Follow along with me as I read. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. Let's pray and ask God to direct our hearts. Father God, what a joy to come to this season, Lord, as we have just so recently focused on the giving of thanks to the glory of your name and for the gift of salvation to come now to to dwell upon the wonder of the Incarnation, To consider, Lord, the marvel of marvels that You would give Your Son to take on human flesh to keep the law for those who have broken it, to die the death that we deserved in our place bearing Your wrath, and to rise again so that we who believe might know newness of life. Oh, Lord, how glorious and how wonderful As we come to Your Word this morning, Lord, we pray for Your Spirit to be at work, tilling up the soil of our hard hearts, planting deep, Lord, the reality of Your truth. Give us understanding into the wonder of our Christ, the wonder of the Trinity, the wonder of how Jesus is, our life and our light. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. You know, it's always very interesting to me to think of how the four different Gospels begin. You think of Matthew. Matthew, written primarily to a Jewish audience, starts with the genealogy of Jesus through Abraham to Joseph. And, And then it has the birth of Jesus followed by the visit of the wise men and the escape to Egypt. You go to Mark then... And and Mark gives no information on the birth of Christ at all. Mark goes right into Jesus' baptism and temptation and the start of his ministry. And then you look at the Gospel of Luke. In Luke, you have the it begins with the, the story of John the Baptist, the precursor of Christ. And then Gabriel's announcement to Mary that she would be with child, followed by the trip to Bethlehem, the birth of Jesus there in a stable. Because he was laid in a manger and the angels visits to the shepherd from the time of his birth. But the gospel of John begins in an entirely different place. The gospel of John begins neither with the, the birth of Jesus nor with the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. The gospel of John begins in eternity past. Long before the first word of creation was ever spoken, God, in in all his perfect knowledge, was aware of everything that would come to pass in his creation. Before he ever brought anything into existence, God the Father knew he would send God the Son into the world to atone for sin and to reconcile his people back to himself. And so when we come to the Gospel of John, there there is an eternal beauty and there is a sovereign purpose that we see is at the heart of what we are celebrating in this Christmas season. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to explore this first chapter of John because my goal in doing this is for us to behold more of the eternal wonder and splendor that is inherent to the incarnation of Jesus Christ our Lord. As with everything that we preach, our goal is that God's word would usher us to fall more in love with Jesus Christ our Savior. So we start this morning with some of the most elegant and profound words that are ever written. Look here first at John 1, verse 1 and 2, as we talk about the eternal nature of Christ. The eternal nature of Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now this first verse is one of the most critical and one of the most profound verses in all of scripture. With this verse, John is establishing from the very beginning the deity of Jesus Christ. You see, the fact that God the Father and God the Son are indeed one along with God the Spirit is the perfect existence of the Trinity. Now we want to acknowledge that the word Trinity doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible. It's a theological term that is used to describe what the Bible teaches us. And the key to understanding, particularly these opening verses of John, is to understand what John means when he refers to Jesus as the Word. The Word is, is actually the Greek term logos. And it was and is an incredibly important term designating Christ. It is a bridge term, what what theologians call a bridge term, because in the first century it represented incredibly significant truths to both Jews and to Greeks. Now as the Greeks, let's look at it from their perspective first, as the Greeks looked at the universe, they saw order. The sun rising and setting predictably each day, the stars and planets in their orbits appearing exactly when mathematicians predicted, the orderly progression of the seasons, even the way nature functioned and and the way you could grow food at certain times of the year, and the sowing and harvesting of the crops. The Greeks saw all of that, and they said, therefore, from what they could observe, that the universe was not ruled by chaos, it was systematic. It was structured. It reflected a sense of design. And so there, Greek philosophers postulated that there was a logos, a rational, intelligent reason, an ordering principle that was effective throughout the universe. And their logos was something like the soul of the universe. It was an infinite, functioning principle of wisdom that originated and directed all things and that was also the source of all of man's wisdom. And so even in a polytheistic system, such as the Greco-Roman system at the time of Christ, they still had this idea of a logos, a divine ordering principle of the universe. Well, Jews, on the other hand, they came from a very different perspective and background. And so the way that they understood logos was therefore different, but not dissimilar. To the Jews, the word of the Lord was the expression of divine power and wisdom. God, after all, is the sum and source of all truth. Yahweh is a sovereign king who speaks and is faithful to reveal himself. God created the universe by his word. He spoke his word to the patriarchs and to Moses. And it was the word of the Lord that came to the prophets. The Word was also the revelation of Scripture, and particularly the law to the Jews. In Isaiah 2, verse 3, God says, For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. But to the Jews, the word, or the logos, was also more than just the spoken or written word. It was the dynamic activity of God. The word actively accomplished God's will. Isaiah 55, 11. God says so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth it shall not return to me empty but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing which I sent it if you look in Proverbs chapter 8 verses 27 through 31 we also see the writer of Proverbs they're speaking of wisdom as something or someone that is personified wisdom was there when God laid the foundations of the earth If you go to the Jewish Targums, that's the Aramaic translations of the Old Testament, they even used word as a name for God. You see, the Jews thought that the covenant name of God, Yahweh, was too sacred to speak. And so when they were reading Scripture publicly, they would substitute a reverent alternative for the name of God, like the Lord, Holy One, or the Word. For example, the Targum of Exodus 19.17 reads, Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet the Word of God. And so the Word, in Jewish understanding, was historically a designation for God himself. By using this term, the Apostle John is bridging concepts from both Greek and Jewish cultures, and he's redefining them in light of Jesus, in light of Christ. And what is his goal? His goal is for the whole world to see that Christ is the incarnate word, the ordering agent of the universe, the source of all wisdom, the embodied presence of God, the sovereign power and principle of creation, all in the form of man. Jesus Christ is that, isn't he? He is the Word, the ultimate revelation of God. This is what the the preacher in Hebrews says right at the beginning of what he wrote, the sermon he preached. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3 say, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Do you hear that, brothers and sisters? Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, the one who upholds the universe by the word of Of his power. You know, as we as we really pull apart this text, we really dig down into this, this is where we really see how this verse, these verses of John, prove the idea of a trinity. First, John tells us that Christ was eternally existent. He he uses the word in the beginning. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That word beginning in the original language, it can mean source or origin, and it can also mean ruler or authority. Now, biblically speaking, both connotations are true of Christ. But in this context, it refers to the beginning of the universe in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it's interesting that this word is coupled with the word was. It's, and I'm going to get a little technical here, but it's important to understand the text. This is an imperfect tense of a Greek term that describes continual action. And so these two terms together set forward the very firm truth that the Word always existed. In other words, there was no point in time where Jesus, the Word, came into being. He was eternally preexistent. And this is exactly what John emphasizes with verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. Marcus Dodds, in his commentary on John, says the following as a result of expositing this verse and looking at the language of it. He says, the Logos, the Word, did not then begin to be, but at that point which all else began to be, He already was. In the beginning, place it where you may, the Word already existed. In other words, the Logos is before time. The Logos is eternal Secondly, John tells us that the word was with God, Prostonteon. This phrase means much more than the idea that Jesus simply existed with God. This phrase could also be rendered as face-to-face. You know, you think about it just recently, you know, during these holiday times, you had the opportunity to interact with many people, perhaps even many family members. And over the course of those holidays, you interacted with others whom you love face-to-face. That's the picture that's being presented here in this verse. The picture is that of two personal beings facing one another and engaging in intelligent conversation. In other words, this phrase establishes that God the Father and the Word, God the Son, are separate persons engaged in deep, intimate fellowship. Thirdly, you have the converse reality of the Trinity also presented. Not only, are, uh, not only are the Father separate from the Son and the Spirit, the Son separate from the Father and the Spirit, the Spirit separate from the Father and the Son. They are three distinct persons, but they are also one. You see the p- truth presented here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Theos o logos. Now, this phrase in particular has been twisted by heretics. It's been purposefully mistranslated by groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses who authored their own copy of the Scriptures called the Watchtower uh, uh, version of the Bible. And the reason they've altered it is because they want to deny the full deity of Jesus Christ. They have what is a heretical translation of this verse that inserts a word they say they they translate this verse as saying in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was a god they introduce an indefinite article there but that again completely violates the greek structure of this the greek term for god here is in a tense the predicate nominative that precedes the verb and so it cannot be considered to be indefinite john is saying that jesus is god he uses precise language here to accurately convey the true nature of jesus christ the word is not any less than god he is fully divine and yet the son is not identical with the father they are of the same essence and yet they are distinct persons that's why if we go back to Colossians, even what uh, Robert read this morning, Colossians 1.15, and he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And also Colossians 2.9, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Now that's a lot of technical explanation of the language here. But that really just brings us back to the question, okay, Pastor Sean, if, if these verses teach the Trinity, so What? Why is this important for us? Why is the doctrine of of the Trinity so essential to the Christian faith? Well, here's why. First of all, the Bible says in 1 John 4, 8 that God is love. That means that God intrinsically in his person and nature is love. But how do you have love if there is not another? You talk about monotheistic religions, the Jews still cling to the idea of a monotheistic religion, Islam clings to the idea of a monotheistic religion. For their gods to truly be love, there has to be someone outside themselves to be the object of love. To truly have love requires another, in the biblical sense of love. Well, the Trinity explains how God was love before anything anything else ever existed. There is love between Father, Son, and Spirit for all eternity. And indeed, it is that very love that is intrinsic to God's nature that overflowed in the act of creation. The three persons divinely and eternally loved one another, and God himself has always in himself been defined as perfect love. Secondly, this doctrine helps us make sense of the Old Testament. More than 100 times the Old Testament mentions the Spirit of God. It also teaches that the coming Messiah is going to be the defeater of the enemy, Genesis 3.15. It refers to Jesus as the Son of Man appearing with the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7, 9-14. That he is a son to be revered, Psalm 2, 11-12. And yet, in Isaiah 9, 6 that this Messiah, this child, will be born of a virgin and called mighty God and everlasting Father. There's no way to make sense of what the Old Testament teaches about the Spirit of God and the Son of God and the Father God, about all of them being God apart from the doctrine of the Trinity. Thirdly, it explains passages in which all three members of the Trinity appear. The Father sends the Spirit in the name of the Son, John fourteen, twenty six. All that the Father has is the Sons, and the Spirit declares these things to us. John sixteen, fifteen. The Father sends the Spirit of the Son into our hearts, Romans eight, nine, Galatians four, six. And we even baptize new believers in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Matthew twenty nine eighteen. It is through the Son that we have access in one Spirit to the Father. Ephesians 2.18 And the Father's love, the Son's grace, and the Spirit's fellowship are always with us as believers. 2 Corinthians 13.14 If the Son and the Spirit are not also equally and fully God, then all of those verses that hold them in equality with one another are teaching heresy. Finally, Jesus had to be fully human and fully God to accomplish our salvation. It is the human race which has sinned against a holy God, so only a true human being could die in the place of another human being to atone for our sins. However, Jesus also had to be fully divine in that respect because no mere human could pay for the penalty for the sins of the world. No mere human being could bear the eternal wrath of Almighty God. Therefore, whoever saves us from our sins must also be God himself. He must be of equal nature with God the Father if his sacrifice is to be sufficient. Brothers and sisters, as you hear this, again, my goal and my hope is that understanding this doctrine, understanding the beauty of these two verses will lead us to revere and to love our Lord Jesus even more dearly Jesus is not just that friend that sticks closer than a brother. He is not just that one who is alongside us and within us who bears our burdens. He is not just that one who is with us to hear all our prayers and respond to them. He is likewise the sovereign of the universe. He is the one through whom all things were made. And because of his presence and power, there is not a maverick molecule in the entire universe. All of it exists under his control. We can trust him and we can come to him in prayer. We can carry to the Savior the deepest burdens of our hearts because he is God. He can hear everything. He does know the deepest recesses of our hearts. And he is orchestrating all things for His glory and our good, and therefore we are called to trust Him, called to depend on Him, and we can know that He is an ever-trustworthy God. And what a comfort to us as believers, brothers and sisters, to know that this sovereign of the universe, this agent of creation, even now is interceding. He is mediating before the throne for those who are His, for those who love Him. There is not a moment, not even your worst moment, your most sinful moment, where you as a believer are without an eternal Savior that is interceding for you. Is that not the greatest gift of eternity, brothers and sisters? That is the wonder of the pre-existent Christ. Let's go to verse 3 in my second point the creative power of Christ. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. You know, here in verse 3, John sets forth another critical truth from both the positive and the negative perspectives. We have the work of the Godhead in creation. Biblically, we understand that it is God the Father who is the creator and God the Son, the Logos, is the agent of creation. Where do we get that? Well, in Genesis 1... When the text reads, and God said, it is depicting how God created everything with his word. Remember, and God said, let there be, and God said, let there be. It is with the word of God that the universe was created. If we couple that with the teaching of verses like Psalm 33.6, we begin to more fully appreciate the Jewish understanding of the creative work of the Logos. Psalm 33.6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their hosts. Hebrews 1.2, But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Now, ultimately, we could develop a full picture of how the Father, Son, and Spirit were active in creation, but the text doesn't take us into that discussion of the Holy Spirit's role, so I'm I'm just not going to chase that rabbit this morning. But the key Greek term that appears three times in this verse is the word for made. Uh, uh, It means to come into being or came into being, to cause to be. You see, the whole of all things Everything that came into being, came into being in accord with the Godhead's desire and by the power and wisdom of the divine word, the divine logos. To further drive home the point, the verse closes by stating that nothing that exists or has come into being has done so apart from Christ. He is a creator of everything. Everything that exists came into existence by Him. Nothing that exists came into being apart from Him. So it's, it's stating this with emphasis. And again, this is exactly what we heard from Colossians 1, right? Verses 16 and 17. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So the purpose of verse 3, when we just look at brief little verse 3 in this opening, opening dialogue of John, this one verse serves three purposes. First of all, it substantiates the deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. Why? Because the creator of all things must himself be uncreated. Right? The creator of all things must himself be uncreated. Because if you were created, then you fall into that category of all things and someone had to make you. But no. The creator of all things must himself be uncreated, and only the eternal God is uncreated. Therefore, Christ is eternal God. Secondly, this was very important too in biblical times, this was given to refute the heresy of Gnosticism. One of the teachings of Gnosticism was that all matter, everything you can touch and feel you know, that exists, is evil. That which is spiritual is good, that which is material is evil. And so gnostics believe that god could not have created the physical universe because that would mean that god created evil well texts like this one blow that argument away god is the creator of all things spiritual and physical and material thirdly This goes back to John's stated purpose. If you go to the end of the Gospel of John, in John chapter 20, verse 31, John says that he wrote these things down so that people would believe in Jesus Christ and gain eternal life. And so this this verse sets before us the idea that creation is integral to understanding the Gospel. This verse is integral to understanding the Gospel. Well, Why? How is that? Well, the fact that everything that exists was created by God the Father through God the Son establishes Jesus as our source of existence. It establishes Jesus as the one who has ownership and authority and governance over everything he has made. In other words, brothers and sisters, it establishes Jesus as the final judge of every single human being. And indeed, that's how the book of Revelation refers to him. He is the one who is going to return. There is a name written on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. And he comes as one with the sword to bring judgment to the nations. This is what Paul said when he was preaching there in the Areopagus in Athens in Acts 17. Look there in Acts 17 verse 22, Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed objects of your worship, I found an altar also with this inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling places, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. You see, there even core to Paul's gospel preaching to that pagan culture, core to that message, was this reality that this Lord, this God, is Creator. And because He is Creator, He will judge the nations. And that all men are to seek Him in hopes that they may find Him. Brothers and sisters, this this is the reality of the gospel. And it's one of the things that we should set forth when we share the gospel with unbelievers. If there's one thing that the rebellious human heart does not want to believe, it is the idea that they are going to have to answer to anyone. Right? You know, we we like the idea that, that we are in charge of our own destiny. In our sin, we like the idea that we are responsible for our own choices. In our own sin, we like the idea that we are even going to enter heaven on our own steam, right? That certainly, because of the good things I've done, I will earn my way into some form of heaven or paradise or afterlife. But brothers and sisters, inherent to the gospel message is this reality. God, through Jesus, made every human being that has ever or will ever walk the face of this planet He made us as His image bears, to be in relationship with Him. He has charge over us and He can do with us as He wills. Because we chose to deny our Creator, because we chose to live our lives for ourselves, we have all been born in sin. All of us are represented there in the Garden of Eden by Adam and Eve who (laughs) threw off the rule and reign of God in order to seek deity for self. Remember, that's what Satan's temptation was. In the day that you eat it, you shall be like God. And this is still the tendency of every human being in our natural state. We want to be our own God. But there is one who has created us. There is one who is judge over us. And there is one who will determine our eternal destiny. At the end of our lives. And that is Jesus Christ our Lord. If you would be saved. If you would be forgiven of your sin. You must turn to Him. You see, God has given us his law because he is the one who created us. He knows how we best flourish, how best we should function, and that's what his law is. His law is a revelation of righteousness. If we would walk in that law and obey that law out of love for him, we would flourish in righteousness, but none of us do. All of us sin and fall short of the glory of God continually. And so God, in his mercy and grace, rather than simply condemning the entire human race, which is what he justly could do, he came and took on human flesh himself. God became man to perfectly fulfill the law that we had broken. God became man to die on the cross in the sinner's place. And God, who is man, rose from the grave on the third day, defeating death. Assuring all who believe in him of the promise of eternal life. The question then stands forth to you. When you stand before God on that day of judgment. When you meet your creator. Will you meet him as your savior? Or as your judge? I pray that you would meet him as your savior. That you would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. This very day, if you have not already, even to our young people, I say to you, this day, if you have not yet, turn from your sin, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Know the wonder of his gift of himself and of eternal life. That takes me to the final point of this text in verse 4, and here we see the radiant essence of Christ, the radiant essence of Christ. Look there at verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. You know, with this final verse, we come to what are two very common themes with John, light and life, and so we want to take the first part of this phrase, in him was life. And the word used for life here is, is not the, word, the, the Greek word for physical life, it's the word for spiritual life. In John, when we, refer, when we see him referring to Christ as having life in himself, he means that same self-existent life which belongs to God and which is distinct from creation. You know, theologians refer to this as God's aseity. God's aseity or his self existence. It is the isness of God. It is what is communicated by the name Yahweh. The name Yahweh means I was that I was, I am that I am, I will be that I will be. There's this eternal nature of God. Well, this idea of divine eternal life is developed later in John's gospel, in John 5, beginning of verse 24. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so has the Son so he has granted the son also to have life in himself and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man how do we understand this well you see prior to creation all that existed was god he is a pure, self-existent being. God is all-sufficient. He is unchanging. He is mutable, immutable. He is full life. He is the great I am from everlasting to everlasting. And God is in contrast to, with all of creation. In contrast to being, which is God, we in creation are always becoming. Becoming. You see, we had a beginning. We did not always exist. We are constantly changing. And the only reason we now exist is because God sustains us. He wills us to exist. And so when we talk about life, spiritual life, eternal life, life of the kind that God possesses, we must acknowledge what John is teaching here. By God's design, Christ alone is the giver of that eternal life, that life that is derived of divinity. And Christ gives that very life to men. Those who believe in Him, all of us who have trusted in Jesus, by virtue of our union with Jesus Christ in salvation, are recipients of this divine life. That takes us to the second phrase and the second concept that is mentioned here, which is light. It says, this life is the light of men. Now, what does light mean? Literally, the Greek term here is luminousness. The idea here of pairing life and light is that light is the brilliant manifestation of the divine life. God's life is true and holy, and it is the only thing capable of illuminating the hearts and minds and souls of men, and therefore God's life is the light of men. Men receive the life of God, the life of Christ, when we see the light of Christ. Psalm 36 9 says, for with you is the fountain of life, in your light do we see light. And 1 John 1 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And you, so you see where this final verse takes us. Jesus is life and Jesus is light. He is both that is the radiant essence of his eternal being. If we take these verses together, John is teaching us that Jesus Christ, the divine Logos, the eternally preexistent Son of God, he created all things and therefore he created all men. And the same Jesus who created all of us has now come into the sin-saturated, darkened world to bring true eternal life to men His holiness and purity and life shine as a light in the midst of the darkness. His redemptive work is light that is conquering the darkness of sin. He is literally that light of God that brings us salvation and spiritual sight. That is who Jesus is. let Let me use something a little bit as an illustration. If there's one thing I love at this time of year, and I dare say this is true of many of you, I really enjoy Christmas lights. Probably one of the reasons I enjoy them is I'm so terrible at doing them. I like, I'm, I'm not the person that puts lights in the front of my house. I, I wish I were, I want to be, you know, but I, I just, I've got so many other things on my plate. It's like by the time we get the inside of the house decorated, I'm like, huh, oh, all right. But I love to go see Christmas lights. So we talk about it Christmas time, you know, filling up some, some hot chocolate, you know, cups with lids and, and getting in the car and going and viewing Christmas lights because they're beautiful at this time of It's beautiful, especially in the darkness of night, to see the contrast of the colors, all the different colors of the rainbow, some of them still, some of them moving. And I know we got the inflatable things now. If you like the inflatable things, good for you. I just like the lights. I like the lights. I don't want to see a 20-foot-tall Frosty the Snowman. Just let me see the lights. And I really appreciate it when those displays of light point to Christ. You know, one of the houses that we went to years ago, I mean, they had lights on all the trees across the roof and the bushes and the, it, was, it was a massive amount of lights. And if you tuned, tuned into a certain radio station while you were watching it, those lights would dance because they were programmed to go to the music. And I remember watching that display and it was, it was to one of the great hymns of the faith that celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ. And to be able to hear the song, to be able to hear the truth of my Savior sung as the lights danced, that was beautiful to me. It was beautiful. You know, brothers and sisters, if we stop and think of how Jesus Christ is our life and our light, there's a picture there of the beauty of it, of the wonder of it. Imagine a light of such singular splendor and stunning beauty, and that is Christ. Imagine a light that illumines all things physically and spiritually, a life uh, excuse me, a light that, that is a result of life being breathed anew into that which was dead. And that is Christ. Imagine a light that engulfs all of you and penetrates you to the deepest recesses of your soul. That is Christ. Imagine a light that brings healing and expels darkness. A light that relieves all of your burdens that you would cast upon Him. A light that allays all of your fears. A light that lifts you to heavenly places. A light that distills in you the very life of God Himself. That is the light and the life of Jesus Christ. That is God's eternal gift to all who would believe in Jesus Christ our Lord. I would leave us simply with these words from John 8, verse 12. Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's his promise. Let us pray. Oh, Father God, we are stunned. We are stunned to consider in our own imaginations the wonder, the the beauty, the splendor of our luminous Savior. Our Savior who, who is life. Our Savior who is life and light to men. Oh Lord, may we rejoice in all that You are. May we rejoice in the fact that You are the God, the Lord. Who makes that which is dead alive? That you are the God, the Lord, who expels darkness. That you are the Lord who reconciles us, who adopts us, who sanctifies us, and who now, even now, is bringing us to the point where you will glorify us. We rejoice. In You, Jesus. I pray that as we dwell on these things, as we are struck more with the awe and wonder and splendor of who You are, our love will deepen. We confess to You, Lord, that there are many things that would distract us from our first love in this life. There are many things that we would set our hearts upon that could never satisfy, never fill us, Certainly never cleanse us or make us whole. Save us from those lesser things. Give us appetites that only Jesus can satisfy, Lord. All to the glory and praise of your name. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.